All right, so fulfilled. Um, you can open your Bible, if you have it with you, to 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. It's toward the back of your book. You're going to go back there a little ways if you're not flipping to it that often in your Bible. Um, we're going to read a good portion of 1 Peter chapter 1. But before we do that, I just always find it fascinating that around this time of year, have you ever noticed how, whether it's the History Channel or whether it's a new Netflix series, there always seems to be somebody trying to tell the story of Jesus from a secular perspective. And what I mean by that is they're, they're trying to look at the historical account of the real person of Jesus. And I find that fascinating because even some of the most firm atheists that are out there, some of the most staunch atheists, they still acknowledge that Jesus, the person, existed. There's an overwhelming amount of historical evidence that the person of Jesus was a real person who walked on this earth, who died in Jerusalem. Now, what people will always be critical of, who are skeptical of Christianity, is that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead and that he wasn't actually God. They'll give him credit to be a good teacher. They'll give him credit to be a nice person. They'll, they'll kind of liken him to the person of Gandhi, right? Just this kind of guy with some good ideas. And he was this carpenter. Gandhi's an old guy. They're basically the same person. That's what some people will try to argue. And it's really no different than in our hearts today. What we like to do with the person of Jesus is we like to make him more friend than he is Lord. It's the same swap that a lot of us are making. A lot of us at some different time in your life, you're going, man, I really like the idea of Jesus. He's got some nice things to say about this. He's got some nice things to say here. But man, he really confronts me with my, with my thinking on sexuality or my thinking on money that we just talked about. He really actually kind of rubs me the wrong way when he starts talking about this topic. Insert your topic there. But the call is to not follow Jesus as we follow after a homeboy. The call is to follow after Jesus as he is Lord of our life. And as we follow him as Lord, that is how we are ushered into, led into the everlasting life that he has to lead us into. We're not led there if we want to make him our own, a God in our own image. If we want to just follow after the teachings that we like, that is not actually going to lead us to life. That's going to lead us into destruction. And so these History Channel shows, the, you know, the Netflix original series, whatever it is, following after Jesus, they paint this great picture of who Jesus was historically, but they miss the whole point of the actual story. And the actual story involves so many intricate details that we don't even have all the time for it today. Even in this month, there are over 300, probably closer to 400, 400 prophetic statements about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus came, that he actually fulfills while he's here on this earth. We're going to look at eight of them today. I, I always think of this when I'm thinking about like prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament by Jesus. I had a mentor who sat down with me sometime just short after high school. And he was like, man, I was kind of wrestling through faith. I was asking some questions and he was just very gracious, very kind to sit down, let me ask my questions. And he said, the, the chance of Jesus doing just these eight things, the statistical probability of one person accomplishing these things that were spoken hundreds of years prior, and then he actually lives them out, is the statistical equivalent of filling the state of Texas with quarters 12 inches deep, and you walking out just into San Antonio somewhere, right? And just picking up the one quarter that I put an X on before we did this whole exercise. Which that's crazy to think about, isn't it? The chances of, of a person fulfilling all these things spoken in the Old Testament, that it's statistically impossible. And I would always like to argue that one of those things that's in that list of eight is, uh, is the virgin birth. And I'm like, how, did, how do you put statistical significance to the virgin birth? Because that in and of itself is impossible, right? 
So let's look at some of these things. But first, we'll start in 1 Peter because I think it anchors all of our mind and our attention in the right direction. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a quick note here about who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a scattered and persecuted church. There's a group of believers, early New Testament, right, that have been following after Jesus for some time. This is one of the historical accounts that proves that Jesus was a real person, is that his message outlasted him even in the midst of persecution. So like the message of Watergate didn't last very long. The guys who were lying and scheming to keep that thing all afloat for a second, that, that crumbled pretty quick. It took like, what, I don't know, a week or so for that thing to all fall apart. If you haven't read the story, you know, you should learn your history. It's good to know. But one of the ways that we know the Bible is real is because this message, this movement started after Christ left this earth. So the founder of the movement's gone, but all these people carry the message forward, even in the midst of such fierce persecution that some of them are getting crucified upside down. Some of them are getting lit on fire by the, by the nation of Rome to be entertained, to be entertainment at their parties that they were hosting. And the message still prevails even through that kind of persecution. And it's into that persecution that Peter writes his letter. He's writing to a scattered, persecuted church filled with trials. And he starts by saying, blessed be Jesus. Blessed be Jesus. Why? According to his great mercy, he says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Come on, Easter, somebody. (laughs) But our hope's alive. Our hope's not fixated on this just one moment that happened to happen 2,000 years ago. No, uh, that's where our hope was started. But our hope is living and active even to today. We're worshiping a person who's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, even now reigning and ruling where he was meant to be. It's a living hope through the resurrection to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So just a quick reminder for all of us this morning that the inheritance that you have in Christ isn't going anywhere and it can't be taken from you. I don't know what trial it is you're facing today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but the the promises that Jesus has for you, the things that he has been preparing for you, the place that he's been preparing for you cannot be taken by anyone or anything. It's protected. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Who by God's power, all of these things are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Peter's acknowledging, I know you're going through some stuff, church, but remember this resurrection hope, this living hope that you have in Jesus, this undefiled, untainted, not going anywhere glory that you have to inherit one day. He says, I know you're going through trials and that, that those trials are testing the genuineness of your faith, that it's more precious than gold and that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying that, hey, I know all this stuff is going on. Keep your mind and your attention on Jesus because he's accomplished so much for you in the resurrection. And yes, you may be asking yourself, why is it that I keep going through this difficult circumstance? And what he's trying to show you is that that is testing the genuineness of your faith and it is refining what you really believe in. And so let the trials do their work to bring you all the more closer to Jesus. Now, why do I bring that up? We'll we'll jump back into 1 Peter in just a second, but that's setting the tone for the, the prophets of old have long awaited for this to come. They've long awaited for this good news that I'm reciting to you this morning about who Jesus is and what he did. Now let's look at these eight things that were predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament and have now come to pass in the work of Jesus. 
We have the virgin birth, like I already referenced, okay? And so if you're like, I don't understand how that could possibly happen, uh, join the club. You know, it's very confusing. Holy Spirit's involved and the Holy Spirit does what he wants. I'm thankful we don't worship a God I can fully understand. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 7. This is written 700 years before Jesus is born. The oldest scroll that they have found of the copy of the book of Isaiah is dated 100 B.C. So even if you don't think Isaiah thought of this 700 years before, we have writings of this written down 100 years before Jesus is ever placed on this earth. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? And what does he say? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know what? You, know what, you want to know what I think about when I read that verse? I think Mary ever dug out her old Bible and was like, Joseph, look, that is, I tell you this, I promise you, this is what's going on right now. Like the angel, if you remember the story of Christmas, right? I know it's Easter, it's not Christmas right now. But the angel comes, visits Mary. She conceives. Joseph kind of freaks out. He's like, I'm just going to divorce you quietly. Angel interrupts that plan, right? But don't you think Mary just would have loved to have shown, like, hey, look, look at this prophecy. Look at this detail. This is why this is happening. I don't know. I just find the Bible interesting, not boring. I find our lives routinely boring, but I think the Bible is super interesting. We also, we don't just have the, the virgin birth. We also have the prophecy that the Messiah, the Savior for Israel, is going to come through David's family tree, through the lineage of King David. So you read this in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, writing about David, he says, When your days are fulfilled, so when you're dying, when, you're, when your time on this earth is up, and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall, who shall come from your body, from your line, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a, house, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Remind me, what is it that John the Baptist comes on the scene saying right before he baptizes Jesus? What is he starting to say? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And so this story of the kingdom is woven all throughout scripture where, where the, the, prophet, um, the prophet Samuel is saying, man, coming after you is someone who's going to have a kingdom that's established forever. John the Baptist comes on the scene saying, hey, prepare the way for the one who is bringing in that kingdom is right here. Jesus comes talking. One of the biggest topics he's, he's going to talk about here on earth is the kingdom. The kingdom is here. It's bringing this thread all together. So coming from David's family tree, we also see that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, uh, who are you? You are too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So we have the location of where the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in this little old town of Bethlehem that nobody seems to really care about in all of Judah. That's where Jesus is going to be born. The prophet Micah writes this down 700 years before Jesus is born. We also see that Jesus is going to spend some time in Egypt, that he's going to come out of Egypt. Um, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, also written 700 some years before Jesus is born. The prophet Hosea writes, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, here's a really fun thing that the prophet Hosea is doing is he's really looking two directions when he's giving this prophecy. He's seeing that Israel was once a nation called out of the land of Egypt back into the story of Exodus, where God rescued his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to the promised land and delivered them. And he's also saying, just like that, so my son is going to come out of Egypt. The actual deliverer, the actual savior is going to come out of Egypt. Now, let me just give a quick side note here, okay? 
I feel like one of my roles consistently is to show all of us, to bring all of us into this thought that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different ideas. They are one story telling one thing. And, and I know sometimes you read through Leviticus and you're like, oh my gosh, there are so many rules in this thing. And if you get so lost in the weeds, what you're going to see is you're going to just go through Le Leviticus and you're just going to get bombarded with rule after rule after rule. And like, why does this matter? And then you zoom out. Zoom out for a second. You see the whole scripture coming together that the law was given to show that you cannot measure up to all the rules that are given in Leviticus and that you need a savior to come. I'm just trying to consistently remind you that the story of scripture altogether is trying to communicate one thing and that's that God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. And yes, your life might get dull and boring from time to time, but the Bible is crazy and it's awesome. And it's one story telling one thing that God desires to have a relationship with you. Okay, that's my little side note. That's free. Wasn't even in my notes. Okay, free of charge today. So we see that Jesus is going to come out of Egypt. And we read this in Matthew. In Matthew, we hear the story about how, how you know, um, Herod goes all psycho for a sec, right? You remember the birth story in Christmas? And he's going to kill all the two-year-olds and under, all the two-year-old males and under, because he just is power hungry. He's worried someone's coming for his throne. And so he just create, he creates infanticide in his own nation, starts putting to death all these babies. And the angel comes to Joseph, warns him, and they flee where? To Egypt. He is, Jesus is in some part raised in Egypt and then comes up out of Egypt. This is to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. It's that phrase again and again. So we see he comes out of Egypt. We also see that he's going to be betrayed. Zechariah 11. We read this. Zechariah 11 says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Huh. Interesting. How many pieces of silver was Judas paid to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. Same thing. And you might say to yourself, well, Austin, how do we know that's talking exactly about Jesus? Um, you know what the heading for Zechariah chapter 11 is? The flock doomed to slaughter. Talking about how there is a flock, there is a shepherd who is doomed to slaughter. Isn't that fascinating? Hundreds of years before Jesus ever gets on that little donkey, rides into the town of Jerusalem, before there are ever palm branches laid down, this is all predicted, this is all prophesied about beforehand. We see that he's going to be betrayed. We see the triumphal entry happening in Zechariah chapter 9. So backing up just a couple chapters. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having a salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You remember that story out of the Bible? Right? Where, where, Jesus is like, hey, go ahead, go into Jerusalem, talk to that one random guy. He's standing next to that thing and tell him that you need that donkey. And when you start stealing that guy's donkey, just reassure him that the Lord needs this and all, everything's going to be cool. Now, that, that's my Cliff Notes version, but that's basically how it goes down, isn't it? The guy's just like, oh, Lord needs it. Cool, take my donkey, go ahead. And Jesus rides on that donkey, not just to demonstrate his humility, but to demonstrate his humility while fulfilling the prophet calling him a humble servant. It's an amazing thing. You also have, uh, probably in all of these prophecies, one of the greatest moments in scripture is Isaiah 53, talking about this coming suffering servant for the nation of Israel. So this whole section of scripture is so filled with prophetic imagery, but we see in this that Jesus is going to suffer and we see that he's going to be crucified and resurrected. Isaiah 53, starting in verse three, 
Again, this is written down 700 years before Jesus was born. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was not anything crazy to look at. He was, he was unnoteworthy, really. And that's what the prophet had said about him. But then you keep going. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. So we see that the coming Messiah is going to suffer greatly. But we also see that he's going to be crushed, that he's going to die. It says, keep going in Isaiah 53, it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the punishment for the iniquity of us all. And so it says, if you jump down to verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So now the, the mistake of the, the Jewish leaders at the time is that they're not thinking the coming Messiah and the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah are the same person. But we now look back through the privilege of time and we get to see, no, Jesus is exactly who he said he was going to be. And he did exactly what he came to do. He was crushed for our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgressions. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And yet it was also God's will to prosper his days. How is that going to happen? Oh, through this little old thing called a resurrection. It's just not spelled out that clearly for us in the Old Testament prophecy, but we can see that somehow the Lord's going to prolong his days and he's going to establish this covenant with him for forever. So even after he's been crushed, he's going to live. Interesting. You know, sometimes the cross gets all the credit for Christianity, right? And it should get a lot of credit. It's where we have this like atoning work happen for the sins that we've all faced. But sometimes I wonder too, if the empty tomb is just as important, right? That it's in that victory. It's in that, it's in that empty tomb that we are shown that everything has fully, freely, and forever been forgiven by Jesus. I guess the reason is probably because the empty tomb doesn't look as nice on a necklace or something. You'd be like, what is that hole? I don't understand what's going on there. <laughs> These are just eight of the 300 some odd prophecies that G were spoken about Jesus that he fulfilled. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? And so it's not just that he was historically a person that lived. He was actually a historical person who lived that fulfilled all the things, all these pieces of the Old Testament. And so if you're willing and bold enough today to step into and believe the story that Jesus did come and that he did die and that he did resurrect, then what you have is you have the basis of Christian faith that you're standing on. And the basis of that Christian faith is what should stir us up in the middle of hard times that we're facing today. So why do a study? Why do a series looking back at all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? Because if Jesus did it one time, then he's still doing things today. Jesus didn't bring us that far and do all those things then to now just abandon us where we're at today. Jesus accomplished all that so he can continue working in our lives today. There's a reason that we go through this. It's because as we consider what Jesus has already accomplished, it stirs up our faith in the midst of turbulent times that we're facing today. So I know you're going through it right now. I know this thing doesn't look like it's going to pan out. Let me just remind you, Jesus did all that work not to leave you today. Jesus accomplished all that not to abandon you right now. And that should stir up a faith for us in the, in the day that we have today. Going back to 1 Peter now, this is a, a section of scripture that I've always just been fascinated by what Peter chooses to write down as he's encouraging the church. 
But he says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, Jesus. This is where you and I start to feel awfully similar to the audience that Peter's writing to. Have you ever seen the person of Jesus physically? No. I haven't seen, I've seen the, you know, the stained glass that we have back here of Jesus. I've, I've seen, I've seen pictures of him. I've seen pictures of what people thought he looked like, you know. But I've never actually seen him physically. It says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. That's true of you and me, isn't it? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. I believe in him. I believe in what he's done. I believe that we, we actually have something to hang our Christian faith on. It's not just this blind faith. No, there's like, there's history on our side. There's facts on our side. There's things that have happened on our side that we get to actually hang our faith on a person who's, who really did come to this world and live and die and raise again. He's like, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. Now, this is the part that I find really fascinating. First Peter chapter one, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully. So the prophets got these, this revelation from God, this word from God. They heard from the Lord and they tried to relay that to humans, to other people. And that's what the prophets were doing when they're writing all this stuff down. They're searching and inquiring carefully. They're hearing these things from the Lord and they're trying to figure out what this means for the people of their day. And they're inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them, check this out, that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were getting all these prophetic things about God, not for themselves, but for us today, for you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The story of redemption that I've been rehearsing for you today, Jesus coming to save us, the grace that's been poured out, the living hope that we have access to, that's a reality that the angels of heaven long to look into. Now, I don't know much about your like angel theology, okay? You probably are picturing some cute little cuddly thing. Maybe it's got some wings, you know, chilling on a cloud with a harp and it's got a little halo on its head. That is, that is not how the Bible describes angels at all. Have you seen some of the like the AI art that's going around of like depicting angels out of the Bible where it's like, no wonder they had to roll up and the first thing they had to say was, hey, don't be freaked out. Um, I know I have eyes all over my body. Um, I know I have four faces going on looking in all sorts of directions. I know I'm standing on this kind of wheel looking sort of thing, but don't be afraid. You know, isn't that crazy? Those beings who have been worshiping Jesus on his throne for the last 2,000 years, and they've been sitting there, and all they can get past is this one phrase saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. As they're worshiping at his feet, they are marveling at the grace and the redemption that's been poured out for you and I. Things into which angels long to look. It's like they're peering over heaven going like, look at this. Look at how it's all playing out. And I, I don't know if there's much else that I could give you to cling to in a day that is tough. Yes, 2024 looks crazy. Yes, there's something going on in your life that feels out of control right now. And as maybe the ground falls out from underneath you because you are finally getting that call that you never thought you'd call and you're just grasping for something to hold on to, I just want to remind you, God did not bring you this far to leave you here. And you know what's also crazy? Is that there's about a couple hundred other prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet by Christ. 
And so I want to remind you this. We don't just look back at prophecies to ask ourselves to have more faith for today. We also look at the prophecies that haven't yet happened to stir up our hope for tomorrow. Let me just go over a few with you this morning. He'll judge between many peoples. This is Micah 4.3. And shall decide disputes from nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. So that which was once a weapon is now a tool to cultivate the earth because the age of violence has ceased. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears will be turned into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So what prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet? That one. As we have Russia, Ukraine, we have Israel, we have all these different things going on all throughout time. And I'm just telling you, there's a day that's coming when that's not going to be the case anymore. And nations are going to dwell together. People groups are going to dwell together in perfect harmony. And there's not going to be the need for weapons anymore. Those things are going to be, too, those things are going to be turned into tools to work the ground, not to defeat other people. That's one of them. Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Now, let's just have a real chat for a second. If the wolf and the lamb are grazing together right now, we can all agree only one of them is eating. <laughs> Isn't that right? But what the prophet Isaiah is seeing is that there's going to be a day coming where the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What God is saying is where there is animosity between two parties, now there is going to be peace. Where there is strife, where there is violence between two different sets of uh, beings, there is now going to be spoken into that shalom or peace is going to be restored. Joel 3.18 and in that day, the mountaintop shall drip, drip sweet wine. And I know if you've got a Baptist background, you're like, I'm not sure that should be in the Bible. And I'm just telling you, it is. It's in your Bible, okay? The mountaintop shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come down forth from the house of the Lord. You know what that's really speaking to is that the places in, in the world that we see today that are incapable of yielding life are gonna yield abundance in the age to come. Isn't that beautiful? So it's not just that you're trying to wrap your head around what does a river of milk look like, that you're missing the imagery there. The imagery is that the places in the world today that are desolate and that are barren are going to yield fruit. Revelation 21.4, probably my favorite one. And maybe it's your personal favorite one this morning because you're not so caught up in what's happening in creation. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, great, great. There won't be nations fighting against each other. I can see that like creation's gonna be redeemed and it's gonna work the way that it was meant to and all this stuff's gonna be right. But you're probably asking the question actually like, but what about me? Well, let me tell you about you. He's going to wipe away every tear that you've ever cried and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church, I just wanted to remind us this morning. It's not just us looking back at prophecies that have happened. As we do that, we're reminded that God does exactly what he planned to do. And one of the things he continues to plan to do is to make that statement true in your life. I don't know when it's going to happen. We might have to wait for glory for that to happen. But there is coming a day when tears will be no more. Sickness, that diagnosis, that thing that you're going through right now will be gone. There will be no more death, no more mourning. Every time I stand up here and I have the honor of leading a funeral, I'm trying to, in some way, communicate to the grieving people sitting in front of me that moments like this were not meant to happen. Like we have to reach our mind all the way back to the garden where we see that God created everything and it was perfect. And it was our rebellion against his perfection that brought sin into this world and that fractured everything. Creation was fractured. The relationship that animals had between each other was fractured. And the relationship that people had in between each other was fractured. And we were all destined, doomed to death. 
And Jesus comes to provide us a way out, a path out of that destruction. And he comes to offer us this life, this abundant life, this way into abundant life. And it's not, we don't get there, like I said, by just acknowledging that Jesus had a few good ideas. No, we, we submit our life to him and we say, God, I'm, I'm yours. Lead me in the way that you want to. Correct the things that you want to correct. Take away the things you want to take away. I only want you. And he is leading us into a place where he's going to make sure that every sad thing becomes untrue. And that promise is waiting for you, church. And I thought there's probably no better way for us to end the service today than to just bring up some of the hard parts of our story in our mind's eye. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what kind of regret or shame you may have. Maybe you have sin that you know that you've committed and you're still busted up about it. Maybe that's not so much your problem, but you're so familiar and aware of sin that somebody else has committed to you. And that hurts. Maybe it's just the sin and the pain that's in this world. Maybe it's just something that's broken and you don't know why. And there's really no good answer other than me just laying before you today that there is, gonna, there is coming a time when you're going to spend 10,000 years with the Lord and this problem you're going through right now, though it is not insignificant to God, I want to make that clear. It is significant to God. It does matter to him that you're in pain. He's just going to make a plan work out where that thing becomes untrue because you're so caught in the goodness, mercy, kindness of Jesus for eternity. And so even just right now, if we could, you can kind of just close your eyes where you're at. And I think just allowing God to bring up the painful parts of your story in this moment. God, where's the hurt? God, am I carrying bitterness against somebody else? Have, have I tried to take justice into my own hands? God, have I totally failed to do the right thing at the right time? The mistakes I've made, the sins I know that I've committed, the hurtful things that other people have done to me. God, as we invite those things to mind, we don't just bring them up to mind to make us sad. God, we, we bring them to mind to hopefully stir up worship in us that one day you're going to make that memory disappear. You're going to make that thing untrue. God, we long for the day when you restore creation to the way that it was intended to be. God, we long for the day where you rewrite the broken parts of our story and you fill them in with your grace and your goodness completely, God, where there's no remembrance of the former things. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you wouldn't just stir us up right now in a way that we have a little more faith for the day that we're going through, God, but would you also stir up our hope, our living hope, that one day you're going to finish what you started, God. Jesus, help us to trust in you. Help us to see this day come to pass. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys go ahead and stand? Uh, but I'd like to just take a moment to just pray a blessing over you before you walk out these doors. I know we all got crazy things going on the rest of the day, the rest of the week. But let's ask that the Holy Spirit would interrupt our plans and be with us everywhere we go. Because he's not just at work in church. He's with us all the time, folks. And so let's just ask God that you'd go with us now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, uh, would, you, would you go with us out of this building today? God, wherever our plans are, whatever we're gonna, wherever we're going to find ourselves, Jesus, we just ask that... Um, would you remind us this week that you've already accomplished so much on our behalf? You've already done so many things that you said you were going to do. You called your shot and you did it. And you're going to keep calling your shot. You're going to keep doing the things that you said you were going to do. And so God, stir our hope up in that way. Don't let us put hope in the things of this world. God, help us to continue to trust in what you're doing, 
Whether you're refining our faith right now, and maybe you're pulling back some of the branches that don't bear fruit, or God, maybe you're trying to lead us into a deeper, more significant trust in you as the trials come. Either way, would we look back at the history of what you've accomplished, and would we put our feet down trusting in you completely? And God, for my friends that are standing before me right now that are going through hell, I pray that you would meet them in that right now. God, would you encourage them? Would you lift up their souls? Would you give them good friends and good community around them? And God, would you remind them that you have a plan that far exceeds the pain that we're facing right now. You have a plan to do far greater good than we could ever actually comprehend with our little brains right now. Would you remind my friends of that this morning? Jesus, we love you. We pray we glorify you in everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.